First Kings 19 is the chapter where many think that Elijah blows it. The champion of Mount Carmel becomes the coward at Mount Horeb. Fire has just come down from heaven and burned up Elijah's water-drenched sacrifice. And yet here in the very next chapter he runs away. Uh, Yet as we saw last time from the first half of the chapter there are reasons to believe that Elijah has been misjudged by many interpreters. If he simply runs away because he's scared of Jezebel's threat to kill him, why does he pray in verse 4 that the Lord would take his life? He's not a man scared of death, he's a man who wants to die. He's not interested in self-preservation. He's not terrified by Jezebel, but broken by her unrepentant paganism and her continuing power over the nation. This is a man who has been hoping and praying and longing that his nation would turn back to God. And in the last chapter, it looked like it was finally going to happen. When the false god Baal was shown to be a fraud, when the true God answered with fire. But then it didn't change. Despite what they'd seen, Ahab and Jezebel weren't going to change. And the people of Israel don't seem like they're going to change either. Elijah's not a coward, he's just crushed. His greatest hopes for Christ's kingdom have been disappointed. And at times yours might be and mine might be. And so rather than pointing the finger at Elijah, we do well to look at the God who cares for his broken servant. Because if God cared for Elijah at his lowest point, you can be sure that he will be there for you at your lowest point as well. And we should ask, do the things that trouble Elijah trouble us? Elijah uh, repeatedly uh, uh, says to God that he has been very, very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. And people people sort of tend to write that off. uh, but, But Elijah is speaking the truth. It was true of him. Is it true of us? And as we come tonight to the second half of this chapter, we find that God still has work for Elijah to do. It wasn't perhaps the work that Elijah would have chosen, but would it not have been encouraging for him to learn that even though he thought he'd hit a brick wall, even though he thought he was finished, that God wasn't finished with him yet. God isn't finished with Elijah yet. And above all, the message of the second half of this chapter is that even in times of judgment, Christ will build his church. And how we need to hear that message, because maybe we can think that either one is true or the other is true, that that either Christ is building his church and everything's grand, or we're under judgment and nothing's happening. But here we're told that both can happen at the same time. There are some who would look at our nation today and say, well, we're under judgment, so what can we do? But the people of God in Elijah's day were under judgment. In this chapter, God gets Elijah to appoint three instruments of judgment on them. But he also promises that at the very same time, he will preserve a remnant. So that's where we're going tonight. Even in times of judgment, Christ will build his church. 
And as we begin, I, I wonder if anything in this chapter rings a bell. Uh, there are a few clues scattered throughout 1 Kings 19, pointing us to another great figure in Old Testament history. Uh, and in short, Elijah is being presented here as a second Moses. In verse 16, we might wonder, is there anything there uh, when Elijah is miraculously provided for in the wilderness uh, as God's people were in Moses' time uh, by the same sort of cake that the Israelites made manna from. Uh, but maybe that's coincidental. Uh, but there's nothing coincidental about verse 8 when we read that, that for 40 days and 40 nights Elijah went to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now this, this might be largely lost on us uh, until we realise that Horeb is just another name for Mount Sinai, uh, the mountain where Moses received the Ten Commandments. And the, the 40 days and 40 nights without food is also significant in verse 8 because Moses went 40 days and 40 nights without food on that same mountain. Moses also experienced God passing by him on, on that mountain. In fact, some people think that the cave that Elijah goes to is the same cave that God hid Moses in when he passed by. So what's significant about Moses and Mount Sinai? Well, that's where the law had first been given. The very law that Israel was now so blatantly ignoring. Moses had gone back up that mountain after the people had sinned by worshipping the golden calf. After he'd smashed the two tablets containing the Ten Commandments. Uh, symbolising how Israel had broken God's law. And now, 400 years later, a second Moses is on Mount Sinai, pleading with God about a nation of covenant breakers. So we've been here before in many ways. But where Moses was praying that God would have mercy, Elijah is praying that God would judge them. God's repeated question to Elijah in this chapter isn't just an invitation to Elijah to unburden himself. But God the judge is inviting Elijah like a lawyer to state his case against Israel. Perhaps this is why God asks him twice. Uh, first informally, uh, like a pre-trial hearing. But by the time we get to verse 13, God is now present in a way he wasn't before. And so this time he asks Elijah to state his case again, this time for the record. And if that might seem a, a fanciful interpretation, I think that's the Apostle Paul's interpretation in Romans 11. Uh, Paul writes Romans 11 verse 2, Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Perhaps we read it and think, well, Elijah's just, he's just having a bit of a moan here. Uh, but no, uh, Paul says that he's formally appealing to God against Israel. Perhaps when Elijah realised that God wasn't going to take his life, he thought, there's only one more thing I can try. I'll go back to, to where it all began and I'll bring my case to God 
in the place uh, where the law was given in the first place. But certainly in light of Romans 11, we can say for sure that Elijah is appealing to God against Israel. And again, Elijah gets a hard time for this. Commentators say that he should have been praying for the people, not against them. But the only problem with that theory is that God agrees with Elijah. He accepts his prayer and he tells him to take steps to put judgment into operation. So, uh, to recap, Elijah prays that God would judge the people and God responds by telling Elijah to go and anoint three people who will each be instruments of judgment. Uh, So far from rebuking Elijah, God is agreeing with him. (coughs) Elijah prays for judgment and God doesn't say, no, Elijah, uh, don't, you're, you're asking the wrong thing. You, you need to be more merciful. God, in effect, tells Elijah that judgment is coming and uh, that Elijah's next task is going to be anoint those instruments of judgment. Uh, because after all, if the nation keeps going the way it's going, it's finished. Uh, and so, so in that sense, uh, God's judgment is the only thing that can turn the nation back to him. So God is going to send judgment and it's going to come from three different angles. The first step, the first angle in verse 15 is to anoint Hazael as king of Syria. Now this is a very strange thing for one of God's prophets to be asked to do. Anointing a king of Israel would be standard stuff. Uh, but not anointing a king over one of Israel's enemies. Uh, maybe it's like the, the, the Archbishop of Canterbury is involved when, when a monarch is anointed in, in the UK. But this would be uh, like a, like a, a country uh, uh, somewhere in, in Africa with, with no uh, connection, no links at all to the UK. And they're having a new king. And they get the Archbishop of Canterbury to come. Uh, and they're not even Christians uh, to anoint a king. It, it would be strange. Uh, because Syria are Israel's enemies. Uh, Hazael was going to do much evil against Israel. But that was going to be part of God punishing his own people. Uh, we read in 2 Kings 10.32. In those days the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. Hazael defeated them throughout the territory of Israel. As we thought about this morning, covenant breaking Israel has no right to stay in the land. So this is God himself beginning to cut off parts of their territory. So that's judgment step one. Anoint a a pagan king in Syria. Uh, The next step in God's judgment plan is for Elijah to anoint Jehu as king over Israel. And again, that's surprising. Uh, You know, maybe you hear Jehu uh, uh, and Elijah thinks that that name doesn't ring a bell. uh, And he he fires up uh, Wikipedia to find out where in line to the throne Jehu is. He's obviously not next in line to the throne, but maybe maybe he's number eight or something. Uh, But Jehu's not on the list. Uh, 
so Jehu, he, he wasn't like Prince William and he was destined to become king anyway. He wasn't even part of the royal family. He was an army commander. Uh, but he kills Ahab's son and becomes king before wiping out Ahab's entire family. As well as all the priests, prophets and worshippers of Baal. It would be like a commander in the British army uh, taking the throne and wiping out the whole royal family. And that too was God's punishment. God's punishment on Ahab and his house uh, for their failure to turn from their Baal worship. Ahab and Jezebel and so on. They've seen God's power demonstrated in the last chapter. They've, they've literally seen fire from heaven. At least Ahab have, has. But they haven't repented. Uh, and now God's patience has run out. And then the final spoke in the wheel of God's punishment. Was the appointment of Elisha. As Elijah's successor. Uh, which Elijah does at the end of the chapter. Though the, the slaying that he will do will be more with the sword of God's word than in, in battle. And Elisha's call is interesting. Uh, we'll slow down a bit and consider it. God calls Elisha, as far as we can tell, completely out of the blue. Elisha certainly wasn't expecting it when he got up that morning, but God had it all planned out. Perhaps Elisha had wondered uh, occasionally if, if farming was going to be God's plan for him for his whole life. Uh, perhaps not. Perhaps he assumed that that's what he was always doing. But what I find refreshing about him is that he's just getting on with what God has given him to do. Notice the words in verse 19 in front of him. Sometimes God's people can get so concerned about the state of the nation or so worried about what might potentially happen next year that it consumes them. And it consumes them to the extent that they stop getting on with what's in front of them. And no doubt Elisha was grieved at the state of the nation, at Baal worship seemingly everywhere. He's obviously a man of deep faith or God wouldn't have called him. But he's not paralysed into inactivity. He's just getting on with what God has placed in front of him. Which at that moment in time is 12 yoke of oxen. Elijah casting his cloak on Elisha is a sign that he's choosing him as his successor. But what are we to make of the next bit when Elisha says, Let me kiss my father and mother and then I will follow you. Does that not sound a bit like the man in Luke chapter 9 who says to Jesus, I will follow you Lord but, but let me first say farewell to those at home. And Jesus says to him, no one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Well, I don't think the, the two things are similar. Uh, that man that, 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 that speaks to Jesus had, had put his hand to the plough uh, and is looking back. Uh, whereas Elisha immediately leaves his oxen. Uh, but asks to say goodbye to his parents before he departs. Uh, so it's not the same. Uh, and in fact Elisha makes sure that there will be no turning back. 
because he takes the oxen and he sacrifices them, burning up the wooden yokes while he's at it. It's not that there wasn't any other firewood sitting around, but he is deliberately burning his escape route. There was an old chorus that went, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. And in an age of, of deconstruction, deconversion, or, or, of uh, members and, and ministers committing to churches and then quickly moving on, uh, surely we need a bit of the spirit uh, that says no turning back. So Elisha is called by God to leave behind all that is comfortable and familiar. Uh, and maybe uh, that's, that's what it's been like for you to become a Christian. So what happens next for Elisha? Does a, does a glorious life of ministry lie ahead? And again, we can say, well, what happens next? What, what, what does life for Elisha involve now that he's, he's left the, the farm behind? He's following Elijah. Well, we, we get an interesting little snippet in 2 Kings chapter 3. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 3 in verse 11, uh, where Elisha is described as the one who poured water on the hands of Elijah. So when the last two words of our own chapter say that he assisted Elijah, that assistance wasn't really that glamorous. Uh, perhaps Elisha could have been tempted to say, well, I've given up a, a big, a thriving family farm for this. I, I've left loved ones far away to do this. It's pretty mundane stuff. But... Says Dear Ralph Davis, but at the time that was Yahweh's call. And if it is the Lord's call, then what is wrong with the no frills ministry? Perhaps somewhere in the backwater. If the Lord calls us to pour water in the hands of Elijah and we do so, are we not doing his will? Does anything else matter? Not a, a glamorous rule for Elisha to begin with. But he's doing what God had called him to do. And that's all that matters. If you want to know more about what Hazael, Jehu and Elisha will do, you can read on into 2 Kings. But for now, I think this is the final proof that Elijah hasn't cracked. Uh, far from rebuking Elijah, in this chapter God agrees with him. Uh, he agrees with the charges he brings against Israel and he sends him back to initiate judgment on three different fronts. So is that where the story ends? If we find ourselves in a similar position today, can we throw up our hands and say, well, the nation's under judgment, there's nothing we can do, let's just give up. Well, no. Uh, God promises Elijah in verse 18 that he will leave 7,000 who won't bow the knee to Baal. Uh, yet again, this is often interpreted as God telling Elijah, don't be so silly, you're not the only one left, there's actually 7,000 left. Uh, but this isn't so much a statement of the current situation, but a promise, uh, a promise that whatever Jezebel can throw at them, God will always have his true people. 
Not 7,000 prophets, by the way, but 7,000 people. Though we should probably take the number as symbolic rather than literal. God is saying that whatever the forces of evil can do, he'll always have a remnant. He'll always have his people in every age. And that's important for us to know. Because if not, we'll be worrying that even if the church endures for our generation, that it will be snuffed out in the next. Uh, One uh, Reformation era commentator said, We will always be astounded by the smallness of the church. Just as the prophets and apostles themselves were bewildered by this. We'll think that there's something wrong. And we'll be pessimistic about the future. And so we need reminded that God will always have his people who will not bow the knee to Baal or to LGBT ideology or to whatever the current thing is or or simply to the desire to, to blend in and have an easy life. And as Paul says in Romans, it will be a remnant chosen by grace. What do you think of when you hear that word remnant? Well, sometimes I hear that word and I, and I visualise people holding on by, by the sheer power of their wills. But that's not right. The only reason that they are left and don't go down the pan with the rest of the nation is the sheer grace of God. In fact, this is really the Old Testament version of Jesus. I will build my church And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The forces of evil won't win. And even for a nation under God's judgment, there is the promise that God will not leave himself without a witness. So Elijah in this chapter is God's broken servant. And he's not God's last broken servant. Maybe you've come here tonight feeling down and disillusioned about the state of the church. But isn't this something to to put fire in your belly and keep you going? Things may not be working out the way that you'd hoped or the way that you'd visualised, but Christ's cause won't fail. Christ's cause won't fail. And so here God patches up his limping servant and sends him back into the fray. Uh, There's nothing spectacular Just the sure word that God will be victorious. And just as we finish tonight, how do we know he'll be victorious? Well, because the battle has already been won. In the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah had physically stood in the presence of the glory of God. And in the New Testament, they would do so again. Uh, Not on Mount Sinai, but on the Mount of Transfiguration, where for a moment the veil was lifted and the glory of Christ was clearly seen. That servant of God, Jesus, would go down from the mountain. Like Elijah, he would cry out to God in anguish. Uh, Like Elijah, he would be strengthened by an angel from heaven. Then he would go to the cross, where he would defeat Satan, sin and death. So that at our lowest point, When everything we've worked for seems to be falling apart, we can be sure of one thing. Christ will build his church and neither the failure of his professing people or the gates of hell itself will be able to prevail against it. Amen.
Well, I trust that First Kings 19 has put fire in your belly tonight. Uh, and Psalm 46 is a psalm which can hardly fail to do otherwise. Uh, that's what we'll turn to in closing. Uh, psalm 46, verses 5 to the end, starting on page 94. Uh, verse 5, despite all the raging, God's word can't be stopped. Another prophet is appointed, God's word will keep going out. Do we worry about the future of the church? Verse 6, the Lord of hosts is on our side, our safety too secure. Christ will build his church and sometimes amidst all the turmoil and the anguish, all we need to do in verse 9 is to be still and know that he is God and that he will be exalted and he will be exalted even on earth. So Psalm 46, 5 to the end, tune 165 Stroudwater, tune 165 will stand as we sing praise.